Robert Frost once wrote a poem. It starts with two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood. Many of you are probably familiar with that poem of the road not taken. Um, Some of us had to memorize that in school, and and so it's kind of ingrained in our mind. Uh, And so he goes on and talks about these choices that he has and how he chose one and how he's excited that one choice that he had. Didn't look like the best choice maybe, but it was the best choice, and it's made all the difference for him. But what he tells us in the opening lines is something that's, that's very profound for such a small poem. And it's simply this, that there are multiple paths... But there are not multiple ways of carrying those paths, right? Meaning that when Robert Frost comes to this intersection, he has to make a choice. That there are two roads, and he is one traveler. He cannot travel both of these roads. And he goes on later saying that he will not get a chance to come back to this intersection again. And so he stands at the intersection of these two roads, and he has to decide which one of these roads he wants to take. Which one is going to take him the way he wants to go, And which one is not going to take him the way he wants to go? And there's this profound idea that we have this choice that we have to make. And so uh, even though he's not maybe going to a theological argument, he really is that there are crossroads that we have to choose. And, And fortunately for us, that Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 that we can know which path leads which way. That we don't have to stand at a crossroads and kind of guess this road or that road. We can stand at this crossroads and know this is where this path goes. And this is where every other path that is not this path is going to go, right? And so in John chapter 14, Jesus makes another I am statement. That's where we're going to be, John chapter 14, the first 11 verses this morning. It's kind of a threefold um, I am statement. We've been talking about these I am statements where Jesus uh, reveals kind of himself and his character and his identity to us uh, in, in kind of telling us who he is and how his relationship with the Father works. And, and so we're looking at today in John chapter 14, Uh, Those first 11 verses. So I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 1. He tells us, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you know me, you also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because the works themselves. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful, God, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And God, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus, who is the way and provides the way for us to come back to our creator. And God, I pray that as we work through this text this morning, God, I pray that we are reminded 
God, that there is one way. God, that there is one truth. And there's one opportunity for life everlasting, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning that as we study your word, God, we dive into those words and see what you mean by those. But, God, I pray this morning, God, for folks who need to know that there is a way back to you. God, that need to know there is truth that they can stand on on a firm foundation. God, I'm praying this morning for folks that are either in this room or watching online, God, to need to know that there is life beyond this one that they see. And God, you are the way to that life, Father. God, I pray for us who know those things and have walking this path that you've given us, Father. God, I pray that we rejoice in it all the more. Father, and I pray that we listen to your words. God, I pray that we grow in our faith. And God, that we are stronger because we've sat at your feet this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was in college, uh, me and a couple of friends decided we would take part of our spring break and we would go to the city of Atlanta, all right? And I'm going to just reveal a little bit of truth to you. Before that time, I had never been to the city of Atlanta, nor have I been to the city of Atlanta since that time, all right? And now, I'm also going to reveal another truth to you. I'm old enough that when I was in college, we didn't have smartphones that had GPSs on them, all right? So some of you are not going to understand this story at all because you've only lived in a context where there's GPS, right? But if some of you that are a little older, some of you might remember that back before there were GPSs, there were these things called maps, all right? And they actually were paper form that you had to fold them out and had to figure out which way you were going on that map and where you belonged on that map, all right? Probably the closest thing some of you may think about if you go to the mall and there's a directory there and you have to figure out in the dot, you are here, okay? So maybe think of that context. But me and some friends, we decided we'd go to Atlanta and both of them were uh, big kind of political science people. And so one of the things they wanted to do while we were going, while we were in Atlanta is they wanted to go see the state capital of Georgia. And so I had no idea what the state capital looked like. I'd never seen the state capital of Georgia. I'd never been the state capital of Georgia. And so we got up one morning, and we decided that was going to be our first destination. We were going to the state capitol building, right? And so for some reason, in this group of friends, I was the driver, right? I don't know why. I don't know if they trust me or just my vehicle. Um, I don't know why, but they picked me to be the driver. And so we set out on this adventure, and I was driving. I had one uh, friend in the passenger seat. The other friend was in the back seat. And the friend in the back seat had the map, right? And so we start going. I'm like, all right, so I have no clue where I'm going. You're going to have to tell me how to get to where we're going. He's like, well, just go out here and take a left. And so I did exactly that. I went there and I took a left. And we start driving and we start driving. And I'm like, are you going to, is there another turn? Or I'm like, I'm just going to smack into the state capitol. And he's like, we might be, I might have told you the wrong way. And I was like, okay, well, let me just turn around. And then as I'm turning around, trying to find a place in downtown Atlanta to turn around, I noticed my friend in the back had taken the map and he did this. See, the reason that he didn't realize that he told me to go the wrong way is because now he's convinced, wait, maybe the map was upside down. And so then we turned around and we start going back down the exact same road, traveling now past the hotel that we left in the first place, and we just keep driving straight. And eventually I asked the same question. I'm like, so are we just going to run into this thing or what? And he's like, I may have told you the wrong way. And so I asked my friend, I was like, do you, do you know how to read that map? And he's like, No. So we'll give it to this guy. Let him be my navigator. Let him read the map, too. And, and maybe we can figure out where we're going. So he hands the map to the guy up front. And the guy up front just looks at it and he goes, yeah, I have no clue. And I was like, what, what do you mean you have no clue? And he goes, I don't know how to read this thing. And I said, so let me get this right. 
I'm the only one in this car that can read a map, yet I'm the one who's driving, right? This is not going to be a healthy situation for any of us involved, right? And so we had driven back and forth, and, and my friend who has the map in the back now, he just keeps flipping it over, and now he's looking at it sideways, and, and he, he's just so confused. And I was like, listen, what are we looking for? Because we had almost spent hours by this point just driving back and forth. I'm convinced on the same road for a long time, just back and forth. And then we got on a side road, and we were just going back and forth. And we had been like every compass direction there was. And so finally I said, guys, what are we looking for? Like, what, what am I supposed to be looking for? And they're like, well, it's the state capitol. I'm like, great. What does the state capitol of Georgia look like? And they're like, well, it's easy. It's this big building that has this huge gold dome on the top of it. And I was like, a building with a big gold dome on top of it. And they're like, yes, that's the state capitol. That's what we're trying to get to. And I'm like, are you talking about that building over there with a big gold dome on it? And they're like, yeah, that's it. And I'm like, we have passed that building 14 times already. <laughs> and then I begin to realize that just because you have a map doesn't mean that you are useful in any situation, that you have to know how to read the map and apply the information that the map gives you to the situation that you're in, right? And here I was riding in downtown Atlanta with these two guys. One of them had a 4.0 in college, and the other one was a pretty smart guy too. And I thought that surely by now, these guys would have learned how to read a map at some point in their life. And so we wasted almost a half a tank of gas with a building that literally we could have walked to from our hotel, right? And at this moment, I can sympathize with Jesus just a little bit, all right? Because Jesus has spent three years of his life and his ministry with a group of men who should have been able to put the pieces together by now, right? By the time we get to John chapter 14, he's with these group of men. He's been investing in them. <coughs> Excuse me. He's been teaching them. He's been showing them this direction. And he, they should have kind of gotten a picture that what they thought the Messiah was all about was not. You see, they had this picture. The Messiah was going to be this military leader, and he was going to come in and establish this kingdom, and he was going to reestablish the nation of Israel. He was going to kick out the Romans. And Israel was going to be the great power of the world. And he was going to be the king of all of it. This military dictatorship or this military um, um, uh, kingdom that the Messiah was going to establish. And so Jesus has spent three years kind of walking them pace by pace by pace, step by step. Like, listen, that's not what we're here for. That's not the mission of the Messiah. I know that's what you're thinking. I know that's the mental image of the Messiah, this strong, victorious military leader. That's not what the Messiah's mission really is. I'm going to establish a kingdom, 100% true, but it's not going to look like the kingdom that you're thinking. It's not going to be this physical kingdom here on earth at this point uh, that has to do with the nation of Israel. So all the way back in chapter 13, he's reiterating that point to him that he's going to establish this kingdom but it's going to be different than the one they had in mind. Right? This kingdom is not going to be established by military might. This kingdom is not going to be the establishment of Israel controlling the whole world. This kingdom is not going to have him sitting on a throne at that moment ruling the world. This kingdom is going to require him to die. To be that spot, to build this kingdom, he's going to have to die. There's a necessity of his death. And in telling them the necessity of his death, they kind of like, no, we don't believe this. We don't think this is going to be true. And then in chapter 13, <coughs> excuse me, is where he kind of tells them, listen, this is getting true. And we're getting very close to it. One of you is going to betray me. And then one of you is going to deny that you ever even knew me. And then the rest of you guys, you're going to scatter like sheep. You're just going to desert me. 
And so one of you is going to betray me and have me arrested. The other one's going to follow, and you're going to try to, but then you're going to get the pressure, and you're going to deny me, and the rest of you are going to be nowhere to be found. And this is the truth that Jesus drops on them in chapter 13. Now, I want you to think, this is probably a pretty low point for them. Here's, think, if you were in their shoes, you were these guys that for three years you have been following this man, and you've seen this man do amazing, miraculous things. You've seen him control the weather. You've seen him speak to a storm, and it stopped. You've seen him cast out demons. You've seen him heal amazing things and sicknesses. You've seen him do all this amazing stuff, and all of a sudden he's told you he's got to die. And not only this, he got to die, but you're going to either desert him or betray him or deny him. That's the only three categories that we find the disciples falling into at the end of this story. They're either going to betray him, deny him, or desert him. That's a hard truth that they're having to swallow. And this is what he's telling them in chapter 13. So then we get to the first part of chapter 14. In this very first verse, he kind of flips it around. He tries to give them some encouragement in verse, or chapter 14, verse 1. And he says, your heart must not be troubled. Right? Since he knew their heart was troubled. He knew that this was weighty and this was heavy. And he says, you, your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he goes on to verse 2. And there's a lot for us to unpack in verse 2. And he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. Now, if you have a different translation, it may say there are different rooms or an older translation that I grew up with and some of you may have is uh, that it may have different or you may have uh, many mansions, right? And so this is why there are songs about having a mansion on the hillside when you get to heaven. It's, it's based on kind of this verse and um, that, that this picture that when you get to heaven, you're going to have this huge mansion that's got your name on it and Jesus is just up there kind of being a carpenter right now and he's building this mansion, all right? And here's what I've got to tell you. <coughs> this verse, excuse me, this word that he uses doesn't have to mean mansion. It literally means a dwelling place, a residing place, a place that you could abide, a place that you can stay, and a place that you can call home, right? So it doesn't have to do with a physical house. It doesn't have to do with a, a physical size of a mansion or anything like that. So what he's really telling you is, listen, in my father's house, there's a place for you. There's a place that you can dwell that you can be with God and you can reside with Him and you can be in His presence for all of eternity. There's a place and I'm going to prepare that place for you. And listen, here's what i got to tell you. The point of going to heaven is just that. It is to reside with God. You see, we've made heaven this idealistic idea. We've got this idea that heaven is these streets of gold and these pearly things. And that's true. And then we've got heaven's going to be this place where I get this huge mansion and I have all this stuff. And we built up so much the stuff of heaven, we forgot the point of heaven is that God is there. And for the first time in our existence, we get to be in the very presence of God himself. You see, the point of heaven is residing with God, dwelling with God. And I'm convinced that when we get there, if there's not a mansion on the hillside with my name on it, I don't think I'm going to care. Because the magnificence of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God is going to so overwhelm all of us that if we had a picture of what we thought heaven's going to be like, it's going to be 10 million times more than that. And it's not because there's a mansion on the hillside with my name on it. It's simply because I get to reside and be with the God who created me and loves me and cares for me. We get to reside with God. And he goes on and he says at the, in that verse, he said, If it were not true, if there weren't all these dwelling places, if God didn't have a space in his house for you, I would have told you this already. Right? And this is where this becomes kind of an identity statement 
for Jesus because he, he, he makes kind of this statement about the Father's house. And you've got to understand that when he makes this statement about the Father's house, the only way he can make this statement is if he knows about the Father's house. And then when he knows about the Father's house is because he's been there. You see, we started with these I am statements all the way back in, in John uh, chapter 6, and he's talking about being the bread of life. And he talks about the bread that came down from heaven, right? And so understand that what he's telling you about the house of God is because Jesus resided there. He dwelled there. He is the only one that can give us an explanation of what heaven looks like, right? And so, <coughs> excuse me, goodness, um, that we need to understand that this is where this identity statement comes true because he's telling us that Christmas might have been my physical birthday here on earth, but it was not my beginning, right? I didn't start on Christmas. It, it might have been my incarnation. It might became when I became in this physical world, and it's fine for us to celebrate that because it's a huge part of his plan, but really it's just this transition of Christ from heaven to earth. And so the birth of Christ is not the beginning of Christ, that he, like God the Father, is eternal. He has no beginning, and he has no end. And so the Father's house, he knows it because he's dwelled there, he's been there, and we can trust what he says about this. You see, there's nobody on earth that can tell us the details of the Father's house. Why? Because to get there, we don't get to come back from there. All right? And what Jesus is saying is, I started there. I was there. And now I came here. And he goes on to finish verse 2 with this promise. And he says, I go away to prepare a place for you. And so his death, his physical absence from the disciples is essential to this promise, this promise to prepare a place for them, a place that they can reside with God. And so this is why this becomes essential for us to stand, understand and essential for the mission because we are not holy enough to be in the presence of a holy God, right? And so how can there be a place for us, how can there be a place for Michael Rakes to be in the presence of a holy God who cannot have imperfections around him? That his sure glory and his sure holiness would, would cause me to not exist if I tried to come into his presence. How is there a place in God's presence for me? And the only way there's a way, or the only place, the only way that's a possibility is if there's a sacrifice. If there's something that covers my sins or atones for my sins, something that takes away the punishments of my sins. And so Christ is telling us his mission. He is going to be that sacrifice. He's going to give his life, take our punishment, pay that sacrifice so that we can be holy. And so what we gain in his death is his holiness and his righteousness. There's this trade-off that happens. Thank you. It's a good neighbor that brings you water. Either that or you just got tired of me coughing. Either way, I'll take it. So there's this trade-off that happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, he is righteous and holy and pure, and we are all the opposite of that. But when he is the sacrifice and he necessitates his death to be that sacrifice, then we get all of that, and he takes all of our unrighteousness and our impurities and our holiness and our unholiness, and we get all that he gave up. And so now there can be a place for us in the presence of God, we can be holy in the presence of God because of his death, because he went away, and because he prepared a place for us by dying for us. We get his righteousness and his holiness, and we can reside with this holy God in the Father's house. And it took him going to prepare and going to be away from us to prepare that for us. And then he goes on, he says, not only is there a place, and he makes another promise 
in verse 3. He says, not just the, the place that I'm preparing that's a promise. And he makes this promise not just to the disciples of the first century, but every century after that. In verse 3, if I go away and I prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I'll receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You see, this promise is not just that he's going his promise is that he's coming back and he's going to take us with him and we get to dwell with him for all of eternity, that we get to be where he's at for the rest of all eternity that we can't even think of. And so for you guys that like the end time stuff and, and you like to kind of the timeline and stuff like that, this is a very strong argument in this verse for the pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, now we're not, I don't have time to go through all that because that spaghetti is already hitting my nose all the way up here. Okay, so if you want to talk about that, meet me. Later, and we could talk about that, but we'll dive into that a little later. But there's this promise of a place and a promise of his returning, which leads to this question, well, how do we get to this place? How do we get to this place where we can dwell with God? And, and what path do we take to get there? And that's where Thomas is at. And Thomas is asking this question in verse 5. And he says, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Lord, there's this beautiful place that you're talking about, and we want that place. And, and Thomas just hasn't put all the puzzle pieces together yet. Now, before you look down on Thomas, you need to realize that you have the full story. Thomas didn't have the full story at the moment. So we can look 2,000 years later and we can say, oh, that's how all those pieces fit together. Thomas is living with the information he has in that moment, and he hasn't got the full picture for just that moment. And then Jesus steps in with this very clear statement in verse 6, right? So Thomas said, we don't know the way to this place. And so with that, Jesus steps in in verse 6, and he says, I am the way. So Thomas, the, the, I am the way to the place that I promised you. Thomas, if you want to dwell with the Father, if you want to see his greatness and his majesty, if you want to abide with him and reside with where he's at, then I'm the way to do that. Right? And he's not just telling Thomas that. He's telling all of humanity that. He's telling me, he's telling you that, that they're for the way to heaven and he is that way. That this is a very exclusive claim. And, and there are not many paths to heaven. And regardless of what other folks will tell you, they will say there's 8 billion people on the earth today. And so there's 8 billion paths to God. No. I'm going to tell you there's one. Because that's what the Word of God says. Because that's what the Son of God says. David Gusick is a great writer, and he writes this. He says, simply put, if Jesus is not the only way to God, then he is not any way to God. If there are many roads to God, then Jesus is not one of them. Because he absolutely claimed that there's only one road to God, and he himself was that road. Now, there's folks that are all like that. Right? There are folks that hear that statement, and they're like, oh, well, Christians are a bunch of bigots. That's the word they're going to use for you today, right? They're very exclusive. They're not inclusive. They're closed-minded, and they're too restrictive. And they're going to say Christians have always been that way, based on the fact that there's an exclusive claim to the cause and the way of Christ. But David Gusick goes on to write, and he goes on to say that biblical Christianity is actually the most inclusive religion in the world. He says that a Christian can keep their native language and culture and follow Jesus in the midst of it all. He says, in the early criticisms of Christianity, it was the fact that they were too inclusive. You see, they would allow anybody, and they would take anybody, slave or free, rich or poor, man or woman, Greek or, barba or barbarian, all were accepted, but only on the common ground of the truth that was revealed in Jesus Christ. To leave this common ground in Jesus is spiritual suicide, both now and for all eternity. 
See, Christianity is not an exclusive religion. We just claim the truth that there is one path. We don't tell you you had to be born into a certain family. We don't tell you you had to be born into a certain culture. We don't tell you you had to give up a certain language that you grew up knowing. We include all of that. And all of that is commonly founded within the common ground of the truth of Jesus Christ. And once we leave the truth of Jesus Christ to walk away and say there's got to be multiple ways, it's to leave the common ground of what Jesus says about him. And so I want you to understand that this statement is actually a very liberating statement. It's not a restrictive statement like people try to make it to be. It's such a liberating idea because here's how this works. When we come to the end of our lives as Christians, we are so liberated because our heart doesn't have to be troubled. Can I share with you, I've sat by the bedside of many people who are facing their last days. And there are always these questions of folks who aren't full Christians or folks who aren't Christians. What's next? What's going to happen? And then we have to share with them the truth of Scripture. And, and we have to tell them there are two destinations. And, and when you leave this earth, you will spend eternity in one of those two destinations. There's not a million destinations. There's only two. And when you close your eyes here and you breathe your last here for the last time, you'll find your next breath and your next eye opening in one of those two places. And the next question is, well, have I been good enough to get to the good place? Have I been good enough to get into heaven? And you can see the agony in their eyes, and you can hear the quaking in their voice of, and I've, wasted, I've done so much bad stuff in my life. I've done all these terrible things, and you wouldn't even have this conversation. You wouldn't even be sitting here with me if you knew all the bad things. And now time has run out, and there's no way that I can make up for all of that stuff that I've done. There's no way that I can do all the good works. And so their heart is troubled because their heart is trying to figure out, have I done enough good works to cover up all my bad works? Have I done enough good to get me into heaven? Have I done enough? Have I been a good enough church member? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I, have I prayed enough? Have I spent enough time in His Word? Listen, don't let your heart be troubled. You know why? Because your works and what you do is not the way to heaven. The way to heaven is Him. He is the way to heaven. This is the liberation of this statement. It doesn't matter if you worked hard enough or tried hard enough. You cannot and you will not do it. The liberation part is you don't have to. Because the way to heaven is not your good works. It's not giving money to the offering plate. It's not uh, serving on all these teams and all these committees. It's nothing you do. He is the way to heaven. He makes that very clear when he says, I am the way. You see, our job is simply to walk in that way. Our way is simply to trust that what he says is true and what he says is the truth and to follow the path and trust this is the path that's going to get me from where I am to where I want and where I need to be. I don't have to make the path. I don't have to construct the path. I simply follow the path. He is the way and it doesn't depend on me to get there. I simply have to follow him and the one who's gone there or been there came here and went back. That's the one I'm going to trust to get me there. You see, he tells us, and we can trust him because not only is he a way, or the way, he is the truth as well. Many of you may know that different dictionaries every year pick a word of the year. An Oxford dictionary in 2016 picked the word of the year as post-truth, right? And I thought that was two words, but apparently you put a hyphen between them, it becomes the word of the year, right? And so you write the dictionary, you can do those kind of things, right? So post-truth was the word of the year in 2016. And some of you have heard that word, but they define it this way. They say there's circumstances or a time when objective facts are less influential 
and shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional and personal belief. Basically, what they're saying is there's a time or circumstances when facts don't really matter, that truth becomes relative. It becomes that, that whatever you want truth to be is true for you. And so what's true for me doesn't have to be true for you. And what's, what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. And that becomes bleeding into our morals, that what's right for you, that doesn't mean it's right for me. And what's right for me doesn't mean it has to be right or wrong for you. Right? Now, there's a problem with that. And the problem is that it simply doesn't work. Right? I tell folks all the time, I am a math and science kind of guy. And the reason I'm a math and a science kind of guy is because there is a right answer and there's a wrong answer. Okay, And I never was a good English person where you can come up with whatever you want to and you just argue it really well and then you get 100 on your paper. No, I like the fact that when I finish and I turn in that paper, this answer is either right or it's wrong. Okay, And there's either absolute yes or absolutely no. Right? And I like that. I like the fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It equals 4 for me. It equals 4 for you. All right? And so you don't get to grade my paper and say, I'm sorry, today 2 plus 2 equals 6. All right? But tomorrow, I may feel different, and 2 plus 2 may equal 3. Right? It doesn't work that way. There, there are fundamental things that have to happen. So I want you to just walk this road with me for just a moment. I want to imagine if you were building a house or if you were working with somebody else. Okay? And my truth is that a foot is 12 inches. Okay? Now, if you go to Subway and you order a foot-long sub, it should be 12 inches, all right? That's just my personal opinion. I don't know. I haven't measured one, all right? But a foot is a standard of 12 inches. Now, let's say you decide, I think a foot's 10 inches, all right? And so you and I are working together. We're going to start building whatever we're going to build together. And I have the standard that a foot is 12 inches, and you think a foot is 10 inches. And so when I call out that I need a board that's 5 foot 6 inches long, then I need a board that is 66 inches, right? That's the math for you. 5 foot 6 inches, 66 inches, right? But you heard 5 foot 6 inches, and so for you, a foot is 10 inches. And so instead of 66 inches, your board is now 56 inches, right? So I want you to think about this for just a moment. How well is this going to work in building your house? How well is this going to work in putting a car together? How well is this going to work in anything that you try to build or construct? I don't care if you're building a birdhouse, right? It's probably not going to work too well if you're working off a different set of truth statements. There are absolute truths, and there are things that, that have to be those ways. The, the truth cannot be relative. And so when Jesus makes this claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life... He's making this very profound and very powerful exclusive statement. There are not multiple truths. There are not different types of truth. There is only one truth, and we interact with that one and only truth, and Christ claims to be that truth. And this is not a small claim. This is a huge statement that, that reveals the deity and the divinity of Christ. And one author put it this way. He says, while many things can claim to have the truth, only one thing can claim to be the truth. And that one thing is God himself. And so when Christ claims to be the truth, he is claiming two things. First, he is claiming in verse 10 to be God. And also in verse 10, he's claiming to speak the truth. Right? And we're going to see how those two things work if you'll look with me in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, Do, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says there's this oneness that exists between the Father and Son. This the oneness that has no equivalent to anything we know. And this, these one are together, that they exist 
in each other, through each other, and they cannot exist apart from each other. Their essence and their nature are equal to each other, right? And, and so they are together. He's claiming equality with God, right? And, and so then the second part is that not only is he claiming to be God, but he's claiming to speak the words of God, the truth of God. And so we finish that verse, and he says in the end of that verse, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. What he's telling you is the words that you hear, they're the words of God, which means they are the words of truth. When God speaks, he speaks truth. And it's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, Moses says this. He says, God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does God speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer to both those is no. Because when God speaks, it is truth. When he speaks, he speaks it's going to happen. And we see the same idea in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Uh, the author there says that so there are two things that are unchangeable, two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's the first one. And we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is set before us. Right? So what the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you need to know two things are never going to change. One, God is never going to lie to you. And so two, if God told you this is the way, then this is the way. If God said this is the path, this is the path. And that's never going to change because God cannot lie. He cannot change what he has said. And so what Jesus is saying is that he's the only way to the Father is to get to him. And so let me be clear. It doesn't matter if we like that statement. It doesn't matter how that statement makes us feel. It doesn't matter if someone finds that a statement offensive. It is truth. Why? Because it is spoken by him. And he speaks truth because he is truth. And we don't get to determine truth. We get to live with truth. We get to interact with truth. We don't get to determine truth. But I want you to look, because not only is this a truth statement, but there's a, a truth that comes with this promise. Remember that promise he made earlier? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming back so that you can be with me for all eternity. You see, if he makes that statement, then that's a truth claim, that he makes this promise and he cannot not fulfill it. He cannot lie to us. He can't say, hey, I'm going to do this and then it not be true because he is the truth, right? And so he gets us this hope that's set before us and we don't have to worry about it because he's the way, he's the truth, and he's also the life, right? And that's the third part of the I am statements that Jesus makes in verse six. I told you it was kind of threefold that he is the way. In verse six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I were privileged enough to take a cruise uh, that featured some of the family from Duck Dynasty, the, the Robertson family, right? And again, some of you, you need to go look them up. If you don't know the Robertson family, you'll be all the better for meeting Uncle Cy and all the, the Robertson family, okay? Um, but th they were speaking. They had several engagements on the cruise ship together. And every morning, they, they, one of them spoke and uh, feel the father um, he preached a couple of the mornings, and one of the main points that he, every single time that he got up and spoke, he made this clear that, that at some point, all of us are facing the same problem. And he said that everyone on planet Earth is facing the six-foot hole. He says we're all going to die. It's happening to some of us right now. It's happened to everyone that's come before us. It's happening to us, and it will happen to everyone that comes after us. And he goes on to say, that there is no way for us to get off planet Earth without dying. And he says, listen, if you know a way to get off planet Earth 
without dying, I am all ears. If you know a way to stay on planet Earth without dying, I'm all ears. And I forgot how old he said he was at the time of this. And he says, because I'm getting old. And if there's a way not to go through death, I'm all about it. And he says, so if you know there's some, some medical technology, then come talk to me. I want to hear. If you know some miracle cure, come talk to me. If you know a way to get off this planet and stay alive or stay on this planet and stay alive, I want to know about it. See, the reality is that we're all facing that six-foot hole. It's happened to everybody that's came before us. It's happened to everybody that's here now. And it's happened to everybody that's coming after us. There's only two exceptions to that throughout the Bible. Now, again, we don't have time to dive into those right now. But then we find this hope. In the midst of death being all around us, there's this hope in verse 6 that I am the life. And he's not talking about life on this earth. He's talking about eternal life. Remember, the promise is that he's going to prepare a place and he'll receive us back to himself so that we can be with him always. That we'll always be with him. And so Christ isn't talking about life just on earth. He's talking about this, this life that is eternal and life that he's going to come back and we're going to live with him forever. And this eternal life has actually been a theme through the book of John all the way through the very beginning in one of the most popular verses of the Bible in John 3.16 for God loves the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How can he claim to have eternal life for somebody else? Because he is life. And when you get a little closer to the end of the book in John chapter 17, verse 2 and 3, he says, For you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all that you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and the one who has sent Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, when he died, he took care of our sin problem. But when he rose again from the grave, he took care of our death problem. And so we don't have to have a heart that's troubled about that six-foot hole because we have the answer to it. We don't have to have a heart that's troubled about what happens after the end of our life because the way, the truth, and the life has told us. I don't know if you've ever been hiking. I know several of you are, some of you are kind of avid hikers, and I grew up uh, in Stokes County, and there were several trails in some of the state parks around there. If you've ever been hiking, uh, there, there are trail markers, and so if you're walking through the woods, and you see a little triangle, or a circle, or a diamond, they're different colors, they're different shapes to mark different trails, right? Those trail markers are nailed into a tree, and they're nailed into those trees by somebody who intentionally plotted out a path for you. They, they have been to a place, and they have been from where you're at to that place, and they walked that path, and they marked these trees so that you can say, this is the way, right? And when you get in the woods, all the trees kind of begin to look alike, except when we're in those horticulture people, and then you know the difference in all of them, right? But for most of us, they all look the same. And so the way, the way you know that you're going in the right direction is because you see this marker, and you walk to that marker. And then from that marker, you begin to scan around. You see another marker. And you walk to that marker. And then you get there and you look around. You scan. You see another marker. And somebody who's been to the destination you're going to made this path for you to get you from where you are to where you're trying to get to where you want to be. And so that, that person has nailed these little things to a tree, these little markers to a tree, so that you can see the destination, you can reach your destination, and you won't be lost and wondering and troubled and, and all of these things that come with being lost in the woods. See, I bring up this hiking story because 2,000 years ago, Jesus sent his son to be those markers for us. You see, he came from the destination that we want to be. 
And he came to the place that we are now. And he went back to the place. And when as he went, he began to put these markers. And he says, if you want to go where I'm going and where I've been, this is how you get there. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus sent his son to be the marker. And he nailed him to a tree so that you and I can know the way. So that we can know the truth. And we can find eternal life. Let's pray together.